Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. All right, Nehemiah chapter 11 is where we're going to be. This is our second to last message in the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to cover Nehemiah 11 and 12. I'm not going to read both chapters this morning. I will save you, save you and myself from doing that. Uh, but Nehemiah chapter 11, we come across a situation where the people are faced with an election, if you will. A, a national referendum takes place in uh, Nehemiah chapter 11. But instead of taking a vote, they just flipped a coin, if you will, to determine what should be done. Wouldn't that make things a lot easier? I, I wonder, just flip a coin, not go through all this other stuff. But actually, the biblical phrase here is they cast lots. And in the Old Testament, the casting of lots was seen as a way of like throwing dice and discovering God's will. We see this even used in the book of Acts, Acts one twenty six. It says, then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, a lot of people, when you think of casting lots or rolling the dice, you think of luck and chance, right? That, that would be our first thought is, well, are they just giving it up to chance like Oh, well, just hopefully the luck goes well. But actually, they were so committed to the sovereignty of God here that they fully believed that God would direct the outcome of the lots according to His divine providence. That's what they believed. That when they cast these lots, God would direct it in the way of His will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The votes are cast by the people, but the election is determined by the Lord. And so when we get to Nehemiah chapter 11, we can go to verse 1. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the whole city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. The people had promised... We read you know, last week that they would tie the tenth of their produce and income in chapter 10. And now Nehemiah decides to tithe the people by arranging for 10% of them to move from the suburbs to the city. So all of, all of the people had been living on the outskirts of Jerusalem, outside the city square, out on the land and the farms. And here we, we reach a point where Nehemiah says it's time to inhabit the middle of the city. It's time to bring them from the outskirts and bring them in. And these, belie- these believers had to change the way they were thinking. They had to begin to change the way that they operated because what they had been used to was no longer going to be what they lived. How many of us have ever gone through a transition where you had to change the way you thought about something because what you were used to was no longer going to be what you could do. And so moving from the farm to the city was a huge transition. This was a big change for the people. And there are four traits that they, they exhibited that I believe that regardless of what is happening in our culture today, this is how God wants us to live. Now, I wish I had slides for you this morning, but I don't. So if you're taking notes, here's the first one. Move out of your comfort zone. This is a hard one for us, right? Because we are people of comfort. If there's anything that we are, we are a people 
of comfort. So most of the families living outside Jerusalem depended entirely on the land for their daily existence. Every day was the same thing. Get up early, till the land. Feed the goats, till the land. Everything was the same. And over the years, they developed a pattern of life as they plowed and planted and then harvested their crops. This was their lifestyle. And for many of them, the thought of leaving their comfort zone was highly traumatic. And, and that's what happens in our lives. And they had to leave their homes, their relatives, their neighbors, their work, their friends, and their familiar routines to set up a new life in a radically different environment. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, are you willing to leave your comfort zone for the sake of the kingdom? For the sake of God's kingdom, I, I don't know what God might be asking you to do, but I do know that He wants you to be available. God is looking for people who are available. I'll never forget what God did about eight years ago as a result of a prayer I prayed. I was working in a, in a secular job in California, and I was frustrated. I, I, I was kind of in this tension with the Lord. And, and I prayed this prayer, and this is what I prayed. Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want, to go wherever you want, whenever you want it. And then God said, move to Texas. Move to Brian. And that's where we got out of our comfortable routine. It wasn't that comfortable, to be honest, because it was a tension. You know, you know that you're getting ready for transition when you start to get uncomfortable. Things start to, that were normal for you, all of a sudden, wait, why doesn't this feel normal anymore? Why, why isn't what I was doing before this is what I've always done, and now it's not feeling the same, and, and things are starting to change around me, and people I used to relate to, I, I can't quite relate to them anymore, and, and things that I used to say, I, I, I can't say anymore, and, and this is what begins to happen, is that God begins to move us out of our comfort zone, and what God is asking you to do may stretch you. I think we, we have this idea and we've, we've almost made it Scripture, and it's actually not in there, that God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not even in the Bible. God will always give you more than you can handle because He's God and you need Him. Because if you could handle it all on your own, you wouldn't need Him. And so we have this false misconception that, that God will just make things easy for us, but actually God will make us uncomfortable. God will make us uncomfortable because it causes us to turn our affection to Him. It causes us to recognize our need for Him. And so the question is, what is God asking you to do that may stretch you? Maybe you need to look into a short-term missions trip. Maybe it's that you need to, as you pray for your neighbors, look for ways to care for them. Maybe God wants you to reach out to your neighbor. See, this is why I need that little thing because I use notes and I need both my hands. Maybe it's as simple. What would you say, Susanna? Get out of my comfort zone. That's right. Thank you. She's preaching back to me. Maybe it's as simple as putting a church sign on your front lawn. Just, just start advertising. I go to church. Maybe it's making a commitment to start tithing. I know that that's a huge comfort zone for a lot of us is how we handle our finances. Whatever it is, 
I, I challenge you to pray the prayer, God, I'll do whatever you want, whenever you want me to do it, however you want me to do it. Whatever it is, tell God you're willing to live outside your normal boundaries. Let Him stretch you. The second thing that they had to do in coming into the city and in coming into close quarters is that they had to commit to holiness. I think if ever there were a time that the church needs to commit to holiness, it's this season. After moving out of their comfort zone, the believers commit to holy living. They didn't just agree to live in a remodeled city. They were coming to the holy city. They were coming to the apex of their faith, to this, this centrality of, of, of what had happened in their history. Nehemiah was fascinated by the holy. He talks about the holy so much through the book of Nehemiah. And, and he, he reminded us that the Sabbath was a distinctive day and that the temple sacrifices were sanctified. And his ministry partner, Ezra, emphasized all through the book of Ezra that they needed to be a holy people, that they were God's set apart people. Peter says it this way, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people set apart for God. They had to commit that they wouldn't live like the heathen nations, that they would be set apart, that they would set themselves apart. They would find themselves in that place of holiness. Jerusalem itself was set apart for the Lord's special use to live in Jerusalem and be given the opportunity to serve God in such a holy place was an immense privilege. Now, at that time, the presence of God dwelt in an ark. It dwelt in one place. But see, when Jesus came, and I've said this before, he came to get God out of the box and to get God into you. And so how much more should we as believers being the holy place? God doesn't dwell in temples made by men. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He dwells in you and me. We are the living, walking, mobile tabernacle of the Most High God. So how much more should we commit to holy living when we have the presence of God living on the inside of us? I don't want to do anything that would make God not want to live on the inside of me. To live in the holy city might be a great privilege, but it was also a challenging responsibility. It's one thing to have a home in a holy city. It's another thing to make a home holy. Living in a holy context did not automatically transmit holiness to the citizens. Just because they lived in Jerusalem did not make them holy. They had to choose to be holy. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. Have you committed yourself? This is my question. Have you committed yourself to holiness and purity? Are you living your life separated from the world because you're set apart for his use? The third thing that they had to do was mobilize for ministry. Now that the people were committed to live outside their comfort zone and had wholeheartedly devoted themselves to holy living, they were now ready to be mobilized for ministry. We've already seen that the people were drafted to live in Jerusalem, but there were others who offered themselves freely to this new work. We see this in verse 2. It says, And the people blessed all the men who volunteered 
to live in Jerusalem. In the remainder of chapter 11, we see that God has always used a wide variety of people. See, I think sometimes we, in, in our, our corporate mindset, we're, we're very corporate minded in America that when we come to church, we think of this hierarchy of, of, of what it means to serve the Lord. Well, I could never be a preacher. I, I could never hold a microphone. I'm not called to ministry. Listen, all of you are ministers. Every single believer is a minister unto the Lord. Your vocation might not be ministry, but your life is a ministry. You may not hold a title, but you are a minister. In the remainder of chapter 11, as I said, I see three different groups in this passage. There are those with the first group of gifts, which I would call leadership gifts. In addition to the leaders mentioned in verse 1, there were provincial leaders. You can read that in verse 3. There were provincial leaders. There were leaders who oversaw uh, a place. These paysetters were noble examples to those who were relocating to Jerusalem. If the leaders were out front, then the others will follow. Someone said that the speed of the leader determines the speed of the team. This is true. As the leaders of TEC commit their time, talents, and treasure to kingdom living and kingdom expansion, the environment is set for others to follow. So as leaders, we are determined to serve. We want to serve our community. So maybe you're called to leadership. Then the second group were those with administrative gifts. In, in 11, again, Nehemiah is full of names. This, this guy really loved to keep a record of all the people. And so we could read through all these names, but in, in verse 9 it says, Joel the son of Zechariah was their overseer, and Judah the son of Hassanua was second in command of the city. These were officers who made sure the, the city fully functioned well and that the infrastructure was sufficient to handle the growing population. We need people with administrative gifts. People like Shelley and people like Owen who can come in and, and look at infrastructure and, and finances and, and look at things and make sure all of those things are going in the right direction. These people are essential. And then there are those with serving gifts. Verse 16 says this, And Shabbatai and Jehozbad from the leaders of the Levites who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. The temple had to be in good repair. And these individuals dedicated their practical skills to care for the building. I'll tell you, we have been blessed with elders here at the church who serve with both their hearts and their hands. You know, I just want to thank everybody who serves in this house for your commitment to this part of the ministry. I mean, the lawns, we had the men digging trenches and putting out pipe and laying that stuff out. And, you know, Owen and Willie were here yesterday fixing the lawnmower and getting the grass mowed. And there, there's so much that goes into the church is not just a Sunday event. It's, it's an everyday event because we are the church. This building would mean nothing if we weren't in it. And so it takes so much. And friend, my question is, are you mobilized for ministry? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 make clear every believer has at least one spiritual gift that has been given to be used. 
I say it all the time. Saved people serve people. We are saved to serve. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And I want to encourage you this morning, find your ministry niche and discover the joy of serving in your area of giftedness. Whatever your gift is. Maybe your gift is flower arranging. Maybe your gift is is calling people. If you have a gift to check on people, that's a huge gift. Maybe it's birthday cards. Whatever your gift is, find it and begin to work in that gift. Because the greatest fulfillment in life comes when we're serving others. Number four, adore God in worship. Take a look at verse 17. It says this, And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer, and this name, Bakbakbiah, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. Mataniah was the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. In thanksgiving, we acknowledge God's generosity. In prayer, we seek God's help. These themes were often expressed in song. We talked a few weeks ago about there was a a, a choir group who sang thanksgiving and sang in exaltation of who God was. And on the other side, there was the mourners who sang the dirge. They sang the funeral song, repenting for their sin and, and this beautiful thing. And And when we get to verse 22, it says Uzziah was one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. David had commissioned his worship leader Asaph in a similar way centuries before. First Chronicles 16, 8, it says, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Praise and prayer are central to the spiritual life of God's people. That's why we emphasize our prayer meetings on Saturday so much. As Pastor Susanna coined, it's the engine of the church. Prayer is so important. But equally important is worship. And so I want to plug Wednesday night again. This Wednesday, if you are gifted in worship or not gifted in worship, if you want to learn how to run sound and media, this Wednesday night, 7 o'clock here at the church, we're going to meet. While I'm adding to that, as we're in this season of transition, I do need to let you know, Hannah is not leaving the church. Some of you have heard me say it's because Hannah's leaving. I've been making a joke with her. They are essentially taking, she's taking a sabbatical for a few months uh, while they are in the process of, of building out on their land. And so Hannah and Lubin have to live in Dallas for a few months. And so they will not be here. They have not left the church. She is coming back. And so as we build the worship team over the next few months, She's coming back to lead it because I'm not going to do it. She has to do it. So she's just getting a little bit of break for a little while, but then she's got to come back. Jesus, help the sound system this morning. If you want to help with sound, Amber's back there by herself this morning. Come Wednesday night, please. All right. (laughs) Thank you. So I do want to talk about worship this morning. You know, I, I'm a worshiper. It, it, is, it is who I am. I'm always singing something. Most of the time it's old Pentecostal music, but that's okay. But it's, it's who I am. I, I love worship. I love to engage the presence of that, uh, uh, of that God, of God. 
Wow. Worship can be defined as worthship. It's it's two words in the Hebrew. It's it's a word that means worthy, and it's a word that means adoration. And so it's this place of I'm I'm declaring the worthiness of God through my adoration. Worthship. It's where we engage our mind, our emotions, and our will to gratefully acknowledge the word of our God. There is no human activity as lofty as adoring God. There's no greater, no greater thing that we can do than acknowledge the worthiness of God. The Westminster Catechism says this, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Isn't that beautiful? If we've been made to magnify the majesty, then we need to know how to do that. And I think one of the things that, that I want to instill in you this morning is, is a few keys to worship. What it means to worship. Nehemiah 12 begins with another long list of names. But if we jump down to verse 24, Nehemiah 12, 24. The heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers opposite them to praise and give thanks as prescribed by David, the man of God, division corresponding to division. I want to spend our remaining moments gleaning four worship guides from these verses. Number one, the purpose of worship. Let's start by looking at the purpose of worship. In verse 27, we read about a dedication wall. It says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. They got their tambourines out. The Levites were brought together with grateful celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication. I think those are the three main themes that we can describe worship as. Thanksgiving, grateful celebration, and dedication. Celebration is the primary act of worship. It does not begin with us, but with who God is. What God has said and what God has done. Thanksgiving was a way of marveling at God's generosity. Verse 31 tells, tells us that the choirs were appointed to give thanks. That was their job or their purpose. Let me just say that our thanksgiving needs to be specific. When I come before the Lord in thanksgiving, I get real specific. God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for her health. Thank you that you are bringing her through sickness. Thank, and I begin to thank God. I begin to operate in thanksgiving by offering themselves in dedication. They were surrendering themselves to God. I often, in my time of worship, dedicate myself back to the Lord. Lord, I surrender my heart, my mind, my will, and emotion. I thank You, Father, that You are good. And because You're good, I can align myself with Your goodness. It's, it's about aligning ourselves and dedicating ourselves to the Lord. These elements of celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication are expressed by our total being. It's everything that we are. When we celebrate, we engage our minds by recalling what God has said and what God has done. And when we give thanks, we express our heart in gratitude. And in dedication, we employ our wills by surrendering to Him. Number two, 
the joy of worship. The secret of acceptable worship is not simply what we do, but how we do it. When we come into worship, it's not just about singing songs. It's not just about following the words on the, on the screen. It's literally about a joyful heart towards the Lord. Now, I know some of you come in sometimes heavy burdened. And in that time of worship is a perfect time to let that lay before the Lord and turn your affection toward Him. Because I can tell you that in His presence is the fullness of joy. That's what the Bible says. That when we get in His presence, there is fullness of joy. And as we read in Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so the joy that comes through worship. There is joy that comes through worship. When we turn our affection toward Him, there is joy that comes. When they made their, their twig tents back in the Feast of Tabernacles, it says their joy was very great. Worship was never meant to be drab and boring. There was nothing stereotyped or monochrome about this Thanksgiving service. A wide variety of musical gifts were used to express adoration and praise. That's why we want to get back to live worship. is because we want to offer the greatest sacrifices. Verse 43 says they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The passage is filled with superlatives. The words like joyfully and great joy and, and there was uh, supreme joy and they had supremely grateful hearts. There was nothing half-hearted about their joyful adoration. When they came into worship, it was jubilant celebration. There was such a joy in the camp that they could not hold it back because they were adoring their God. Number three, the witness of worship. Verses 31 through 39 tell us that the leaders went up on top of the wall. The Jews were accustomed to having workers and watchers on the wall. Now the people are assigned to be worshipers on the wall. They'd been used to it. They were up on, on the wall working, but now they'd been assigned to worship up on the wall. The two large choirs walked on top of the wall, one to the right and the other one to the left. Ezra was one of the worship leaders on one side of the wall and Nehemiah was on the other. What an incredible picture. I love when, when, when the books of the Bible come together in these, these stories. We have Ezra on one side of the wall leading the choir and we've got Nehemiah on the other side of the wall. Now you need to remember how big these walls were. They were 12 feet thick. 12 feet thick were these walls. This is what Nehemiah led to rebuild. And, and the, the height escapes me at the moment, but it was, it was pretty tall. And so we have these choirs up on the walls of the city worshiping. The worship service could have taken place at the temple area, but instead Nehemiah wanted it to take place on the walls themselves. I think he did this for three reasons. Number one, it was important for people to see and touch the walls during this dedication service. Here they were. God had rebuilt the walls through them, and now they're standing on the walls to give honor and worship to Him. It was physical. There was this physical thing happening there. It was a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. Second, the people were bearing witness to the watching world what God had done through the work, and that He alone should be glorified. If we remember back in 
verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, the enemy came and said, your walls are so weak, a fox could knock them over. And here, we've got the choirs up on these walls worshiping. They weren't small choirs. As they marched on top of the walls, everyone could see what was happening. And for miles around, unbelievers heard the sound of praise. It says in verse 43, I love this. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. When we worship, the joy should be heard from afar. Let me suggest a third reason for this march around the walls. It was a symbolic act by which they stepped out in faith to claim God's blessing. In that day, to walk on a piece of property meant to claim it as your own. Joshua 1.3, God said to Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. This fall, we're going to do prayer walking again once the weather cools down a little bit. No heat stroke in the church, right? But we're going to walk our neighborhood again. And we're going to meet our neighbors again. And we're going to declare this neighborhood's ours for the kingdom of God. Everywhere where we set our foot. Number four, the response of worship. The concluding verses present us with another aspect of authentic worship. The offering of our money as well as our time and service for the Lord's work. After the exciting service of dedication was over, provision must be made for the continuing worship of God's people. Verse 47 says this, So all of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. After the exciting service of dedication, provision was made. It was organized, it was specific, it was grateful, it was regular, and it was universal. But most of all, the people gave in response to who God is and what He had done on their behalf. Thomas Adams, a colonial Puritan, said this, Let us do good with our lives while we live, to part with what we cannot keep, that we may get what we cannot lose. As I woke up this morning, and I, as I closed this morning, I kept hearing the phrase, valley of decision. I said, Lord, what, what are you speaking? And, and honestly, I hadn't finished this last part of my message until this morning. As I close this morning, I'm keenly aware that this has been a crazy couple of years for our country and the church at large. And as I was praying this morning, I heard the Lord say, Joel 3.14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. As important as it is for us to face elections and cast our votes, and there's been so much division in our country. And, and listen, I, I need to say something very clearly. There will never be unity in our country. You need to understand that. that, that that's not going to happen. Where unity matters the most is in the church. And I think the church is far too divided. Got to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be preached to the ends of the earth. We must love people well enough to tell them that hell is real, hell is hot, 
but heaven is real and heaven can be gained through Christ. Joel pictures millions of people in a valley called decision. And one day, the Lord is coming back. Those who have cast the ballot of their lives for the Lord will be saved. Those who haven't will face eternal condemnation with no hope of a recount. Ultimately, there are really two questions. The first one, is Jesus resident in your life? Does he live in your life? Have you ever elected to receive him into your life by turning from your sins and asking him to forgive you? If not, that's what you need to do this morning. And the second question, is Jesus Lord of your life? Are you living under his lordship and leadership? Is he on the throne of your heart or are you? As we close, let's turn our hearts to the Lord. If you've never made a decision for Christ this morning, never chosen not only to make him resident, but to make him Lord. He's not only your Savior. He can save you from your sin. He can save you from eternal condemnation. But living a life with him as Lord is the best decision ever. So if you've never done that this morning, in just a moment, we're going to pray a prayer together. Maybe you're here this morning and you're far from him. Maybe at one time you were close to him, but This morning, you're feeling pretty far from it. If you've never made a decision for Christ or you want to rededicate your life to Him this morning, I just want you to slip up your hand. We're going to pray together. See those hands? Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning, I repent of my sin. I give my whole life to You. I surrender to Your Lordship. I surrender my heart, my mind, my will, and my emotions. Today, I choose to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook, or visit www dot equipping center dot us